curiosity took you away. Circumstances kept you longer than you ever planned to stay. It's been so long since you left this familiar place. You wonder would he even recognize your face? But if you listen, you can hear a call from grace. You're never too far away that God can't hear you cry. He knows where you have run and all the reasons why. Don't ever think you've gone too far beyond what love and grace can do. You can never get too far away from God. For God will never get too far away from you. He is not content to let you roam. Cause for all the miles you've traveled, he is still your only home. And if you could see how he watches both night and day, the road that led you far from where he hoped you and how he dreams that you're already on your way. You're never too far away that God can't hear you cry. He knows where you have run and all the reasons why. Don't ever think you've gone never get too far away from God. For God will never get too far away from you. Grace knows no distance and mercy has no end. So no matter where you are, my friend, you're never too far away from God, for God will never get too far, never get too far, God will never get too far away from you.
Amen. Well, good morning. Praise God for that truth, huh? Father, we want to thank you today just again for your amazing love for us and the commitment that you have in wanting and desiring a relationship with us that is just surrounded with intimacy and thank you that you are a God that does not move away, that when we sense that you are far, we know it's because we've moved and thank you that you offer us and the invitation as Taylor is saying to just to come back to you. And we just thank you so much for the amazing forgiveness. We don't uh, understand this kind of love and forgiveness that you offer us, and that you desire that all men and women would come to know you. So we just bless you for being a great God today. And we thank you now just as we open up your word that you have so much for us to, to receive and to take in and that you want to feed us each day. And we just pray now even as we leave here, we'll be fed the word from you, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking of a verse, you don't need to turn to this, but we'll be looking actually in 1 Kings, but just to, when I think of you folks here at San Ramon Valley, I think of what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where in verse 13 he said, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. And that's uh, an exciting thing about you folks here, that you are, have a hunger for the Word, and you want to hear what it has, God has to say. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 19. I saw that Ron spoke on this after I had prepared a few weeks ago, that he spoke on this a few months back, but I think we're going in a couple different directions today, which is the amazing thing about the Word. You can open it up, and there's so many different things you can take from it. What I want to address today is really the subject of getting back up when you're down by the story of Elijah, and we'll be looking at that in just a second in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's been said when life is tiring, when you're struggling with sin, when family members aren't saved yet, when bills aren't paid, when school is difficult, when work is exhausting, when your health is failing, when your loved ones are experiencing hurt of a variety of different sources, when the future is unsure as far as what's ahead on earth, it's easy to be discouraged. How do we define discouragement? Well, simply, if we want to go with the opposite word, we would say the opposite of discouraged is when you're encouraged. But really the definition of it is, and we'll see this from our text, that this was exactly the scenario that Elijah was in, as well as some other verses of scripture this morning, is it is being deprived of courage, hope, or confidence. It's when you're disheartened or you're dispirited. And it's been said, and it really is true, isn't it, that discouragement is like a thief. And it, you think about that, and you think, well, what does a thief do? A thief robs. And when we're discouraged, what are we robbed of? We're robbed of joy. We're robbed of peace. We're even robbed of our vigor or our vitality and a sense of contentment. And it's been said that if discouragement is allowed to take its residence in us, then it's going to want to bring along its friends. 
and their names are fatigue, hopelessness, despair, self-pity, depression, doubt, and bitterness. What a group of friends to have, huh? Just the kind of friend you want to say, hey, come on in and spend a week at my house with me. It's not the seven dwarfs, but it's some other names here. And you know, this is a huge subject. Um, this is a subject that requires certainly more time than 30 minutes, and I don't mean to gloss over this very real subject of discouragement, but I do know this from talking to folks over the years, that some seem more prone to be discouraged than others. But it's true to say that I think as I look at myself and I look at you, that all of us at one time or another have experienced this from time to time. And so really the interesting thing is, is like in all things, when we are experiencing discouragement, and maybe if you like, that's a step above when we've actually gone into full-blown depression, if you like. But when we're discouraged, it's good like in all things to say, what does the Word of God have to say about this? And are there any other uh, men or women in the Bible that went through or experiencing what I am. And sure enough, there are. First Kings, or sorry, First Kings chapter 19, one fellow that certainly fits the bill of being a guy that was discouraged was Elijah. And if you're familiar with him at all, just for the time that we have, he was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He was highly respected among the Jewish people. And you think about this about Elijah. He was chosen from among all the prophets to be transfigured with Christ back in that story in the Gospels, along with the great lawgiver Moses himself. And if you like, and it's a fascinating character study to read about Elijah, but his life is summed up, if you like, as a continuing war with this man named King Ahab and this incredibly wicked woman named Jezebel. And I don't know of anyone that has named any of their kids Jezebel. <laughs> Not even close, I think, because if you know anything about her, you just wouldn't want to have her name. And when you think about Elijah, there was many conflicts and, and skirmishes and, and battles of a variety of sorts. And this woman, Jezebel, had this strong determination uh, this was her goal, and it's a sad thing that this was her goal in life, but it was to replace the worship of Jehovah among the people with the worship of this false god, her god, Baal. And she was clever, and she was ruthless, and amazingly enough, she had an effect on this prophet. We read about it in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And he just got out of Dodge. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, if it is enough, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Here's an example just in these four verses of scripture of a man who's experiencing severe and, and deep discouragement. 
And the interesting thing is, is if you're familiar with what's transpired in the previous couple of chapters with the victories that had occurred in his life, it's unexpected. You really wouldn't have seen it coming. We might have thought if you have any knowledge of Elijah as a prophet, as a man of God, that he was immune from this kind of a thing, that it wasn't going to happen to someone like him. It might happen more for the weak and the frail, but it wouldn't happen to the great prophet Elijah. You would have thought that maybe he was a man of all men who realized that God was on his side, and like he had been, that he'd be victorious over all his enemies. But the word of God is very clear, and it's so great that it's so honest and transparent with the way men are and women and what is happening, even in the godliest of men and women, that he fell and he gave into the temptation to really be fully, totally discouraged. He was lonely, single, without friends or family in this situation, and he gave up and he said, I want to die. The interesting thing is this was this mighty man of prayer. He'd stopped the rain and the dew for three and a half years as a result of his praying, and God honored that. And he was able to make it start again. And now this incredible contrast, he's praying that he'll die. And thankfully, God did not answer his prayer as he wanted. And that's a reminder for us, isn't it, that we have a great that we have a God that doesn't always say yes to what we ask. But in this case, he definitely said, no, Elijah, you're not going to die not here, and for that matter, not ever. He didn't answer it. But you think about it, and you, you, you say, well, you know, I haven't gone through all of this, what he did, just constant battles, and the threat that somebody's going to take my life in 24 hours. But you can say, and I know I can ask myself, have you ever been there in that gloom of despair? You know, kind of like where that fog bank, which I'm kind of surprised to see here on this side of the hill at this time of morning, Maybe it's lifted now, but it's just that gloom, that cloud that just comes down, and it's that cloud of despair. And you know it can be on a variety of things. Whatever your expectations have been, whatever it is that you kind of thought God was doing or was going to happen, or you just saw that this was the way he was leading, and then it doesn't happen that way, and it fails to materialize. I'm not really sure, and I'll have to do a more careful study on this. I'm not really sure what Elijah was expecting. Maybe he thought that there'd be some change in Ahab. Maybe he thought that even Jezebel would turn a new leaf or turn to God, Jehovah. Maybe they thought that there would be a new um, sense of lightness and, and brightness into the kingdom. And this darkness that had occurred wouldn't be on. But whatever it was, it really, really shook him. And if you like, it rocked his boat of faith. And it caused him to utter these very words. It's an interesting question when you think about what is our expectations, like what were Elijah's? What are your expectations? He was expecting something different, something more positive as an outcome of all that had transpired in the previous couple chapters, and it didn't happen that way. The turnaround didn't occur. You've been on the earth long enough, and you know and I know that life, life here on earth is sometimes full of disappointments, isn't it? And someone has said, and it's very wise, that we need to be careful that our expectations don't become demands of the heart. The very things that, in a sense, we want to see God do, and we may be very faithfully praying and trusting God to do that, is good. But when those expectations become that this is what must happen, it's the demand of my heart that this happens this way, 
then we might be setting ourselves up for a fall. Where's our focus? Elijah, in this situation, what happened to him is he got his eyes off Jehovah, and he got his eyes on Jezebel and on the thought of her warriors and all that she could do to him. And isn't that an, an example for us that we cannot, we cannot, although we do, we cannot walk by sight, by how things appear, by getting our eyes off God and looking at the circumstances, looking at the market, looking and reading all the gloomy news in the newspaper and the business section of what's occurring and reading and just allowing ourselves to get completely consumed and filled with everything that the world is telling us and getting our eyes off God. We can't do that. With eyes of faith, we need to keep our focus on the Lord. Now, isn't it amazing when you come and you think, okay, now, if, if this great prophet has just uttered these words, you know, what is the God's response going to be to this? Is he going to slap him down? Is he going to rebuke him harshly? Is he going to say something like, you know, how could you, you know, think like this or, or whatever? But look what he does in verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was, his, uh, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. This is the, our God. He doesn't just lavish. He lavishes himself on us with his grace. And so he doesn't just do it once. He comes again a second time, and he touches him again, and he said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the mountain of God. The very kindness of God, what he did in that situation, as you read those verses, is that he rejuvenated him with rest and nourishment. And he's, then he went on to say, as we're going to go on to read in, in verses 9, he asked him, why, why are you here? He says, then he came there to a cave, verse 9, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. A little bit of a possible self-righteous pity party occurring here now. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one who's doing God's will. And he says in verse 11, So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it of the way. Think about what you've been doing, God is saying. Well, why are you here? What's going on? And he spoke to him. And this is the wonderful thing about when we're discouraged in verses 9 and 12, the God of 
of creation, this, the God of all wonders, speaks to us. And isn't it awesome how it wasn't in the fire and it wasn't in the earthquake, but it was in that small sound of the voice of God, that gentle breeze that he heard the Lord speaking. And as we go on and you read the rest of the passage, he got him active and he got him involved again. I was at a funeral on Tuesday, and it's interesting how God does that. There's this funeral, a very sudden death of a friend of my parents, 75, just like that, uh, collapsed and died. And he, he was survived by two daughters and a, and a son. And one of the daughters has been going through a, a severe depression for a number of years. And it was interesting how one of the daughters said to me in confidence just how so much of her life has been focused for the last few years on herself just consumed, and she said it with tenderness and kindness, but just consumed in self-pity, consumed about her own situation. And when her father died, they said to her, your assignment is now to call everyone that he knew and let everyone know that dad has suddenly passed. And when we went to the funeral, they said she has snapped out of it because she's gotten her eyes off herself, and she's now got a task of something to do for others, for the family, to step up to the plate, if you like, and be there for the rest of the family. And God didn't want Elijah to get into a situation where he just was able to sulk in pity and just think that I'm the only one, but to get him active again and busy. You think about what are the circumstances that were prone to be discouraged? We know what happened here for Elijah. What happens for us? You say, well, Randy, I can't relate. I'm not being chased down by a warrior. I don't have somebody with a death threat on my life tomorrow. So how do I relate? And I would just say this, and this certainly applied to Elijah. One of them is, is when everything seems to be going wrong is when we're prone to discouragement. If you think about that on a world or national level, there was a recent poll in the New York Times that said 81% of Americans said the nation is heading on the wrong track. The headline article said Americans are more dissatisfied with the country's direction than at any time since the New York Times CBS poll began asking the subject back in the early 1990s. And the overwhelming comment that people said is things have seriously gotten off on the wrong track. And as believers, and I was just talking to Jenny about this before we, I came in, that we can understand in one sense that, that sentiment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, you can listen to this, but he said, Paul says this, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, revilers, disobedient to parents. I can understand that one for sure. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, irreconcilable, there we go. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That's our world, folks. We're in these last days. And I can remember back when I read those passages of scripture, back when I first became a Christian in the late 70s. And some of those things that I just read, I didn't quite understand how they were going to manifest themselves like they are today. When I think of what's happened in, with just children and the, and the rebellion toward 
parents and toward authority. And I don't want to sound like some, you know, old crodger now saying this, like, I remember, you know, when I was a teenager, it wasn't like that. But it's changed. It has changed. Lovers of self, lovers of money, you see it. I mean, how many, we have magazines that are constantly promoting, and you go to the stands, something about satisfying ourself, or we even have a magazine named after it, Self, that's on the stands. Unashamedly, just lovers of self. But in all of this, when you read that passage, and you read what's going on in the world, and you read the headlines, and you see what's occurring, and the rumors of war, and all of this, that, and the other, we have to remember to keep perspective that God is on the throne. And so when there's those tendencies to say everything outside of, in our world seems to be going wrong, we have to remember that God is in control. That has never changed. None of this is catching him by surprise. And all of these things that are happening are working for his purposes. And he, as the scripture says, the Lord Jesus Christ in Colossians holds all things together. It's not out of control. It really isn't. A second reason why sometimes we're prone to discouragement is, is when our personal world is upside down. And that's where it hits a little bit closer to home. The aging process. We might be discouraged as we see our bodies starting to fail and starting to slow down and decline. Stories told about three sisters, ages 92, 94, and 96, that they uh, were all living together under one roof. And one night, the 96-year-old ran a bath. She put one foot in and paused, was I getting in the tub or out, she replied. The 94-year-old hollered back, I don't know, I'll come and see. And she started up the stairs and stopped. And she shouted, was I going up or coming down? (laughs) And the 92-year-old sitting at the kitchen table was having a cup of tea, and she was listening to her sisters. And she shook her head and said, I sure hope I never get that forgetful. And then she knocked on wood for good measure. And she said, I'll come up and help you both as soon as I see who's at the door. We understand, don't we? A couple days ago, I was trying to find my car keys. 30 minutes looking for my car keys. Just had them. Where are they? Forgetful. Found them in the garbage bin out in front on the street. Got to work one minute before I needed to be there. Next day, couldn't find the car keys again. You know, and now I'm starting to get a bit worried, you know. This time they were in the garage because I was with a pair of shorts, didn't have any pockets, and I set them down there. The aging process. Maybe our hearing is starting to decline. I was with my dad at the funeral on Tuesday, and he has a hearing aid. He's 81. And he completely missed what was being said. And then, like my dad's able to do, he's able, he forgets if somebody called 10 minutes ago to tell me, but he remembers a joke on a subject. And I don't know how the brain works that way. But he did, and he remembered a joke about this man, this older man that had just bought a hearing aid. And he was telling his uh, other good old buddy about it. And he said, you know, it had cost $4,000, and it was the state-of-the-art uh, state of the art hearing aid and had all of these mechanisms. And the man said, what kind is it? And he looked at his watch and said, 430. <laughs> so... If it's not our bodies, it might be, and and I say this word loosely, but it's the idea of the midlife crisis. What I mean by that is for men and women where unfulfilled goals and dreams haven't occurred, things haven't gone as, as we planned. 
that can lead to discouragement. Someone has said, when things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile but have to cry, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Lord Jesus offered that wonderful invitation, didn't he? It's probably a favorite verse to a number here this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the Lord Jesus promises that. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, awesome, wonderful verses, verses 8 and 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Then he went on to say in verses 16 and 17, therefore, in light of all that, he said, we do not, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, what's God doing? It is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Another reason why we sometimes get discouraged, and there's a long list here, but I only have four, and I'm on number three now, is that sometimes we are discouraged when we have failed. In our minds, we failed, and maybe it's in a moral sin. Maybe it has something to do with some area in our lives that it just seems like we, we, we give it to God, and we say, I, I don't want to go here again. I don't want to go this way. I don't want to travel down this road, and then we, we fall. And sometimes that sorrow, which is a good thing, and, and God invites us to bring it to him, First John 1, 9, and to confess it to him, and he promises to forgive us um, from all unrighteousness, but sometimes we can internalize it because of moral fail, failure, and it causes us actually to go into discouragement. Maybe we feel we have failed in the, in the sense on earth that we've lost a job, and somehow that's, that's our fault, and that's something we did, or we, we regret that we dropped out of school and we didn't get as far as we could have. That can lead to discouragement. But we don't really see the whole picture, do we? Sometimes God is doing things in the working out circumstances in our lives when what may be seen as a failure is anything but that, is anything but that. Stories told about a young man who ran for the legislature in Illinois and was badly defeated. He next entered business, he failed, and spent the next 17 years paying back the debt. He was in love with a beautiful girl to whom he had become engaged, and then she died. He then tried to get an appointment to the U.S. land office, but was brushed aside. 1856, he became a candidate for the vice presidency and was hardly even considered. In 1858, he was defeated by Douglas. One failure after another, and they were dark and great disappointments. But the story has an incredible ending, and you may know who I'm referring to. Ending became, the, this incredible ending occurred two years later in 1860. This man who had been so absolutely consistently dogged by failure was elected president of the U.S., United States of America. And not only was Abraham Lincoln 
elected president, he went on to become one of the most highly respected men in all of the world. But he didn't quit. He didn't stop. He didn't just give up. And we often wonder what would have happened if he had. How would have history been different? You think of famous people. After Fred Astaire's first screen test, a 1933 memo from the MGM testing director said, can act, slightly bald, can dance a little. <laughs> and Astaire, I understand, kept that memo over the fireplace in his Beverly Hills home. Vince Lombardi, famous football coach, an expert uh, said of him, he possesses minimal football knowledge, lacks motivation. <laughs> Beethoven, he handled, it said, the violin awkwardly and preferred playing his own good compositions instead of improving his technique. His teacher called him hopeless as a composer. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper for lacking ideas. He also went bankrupt several times before he built Disneyland. How much greater in the sense of us as the children of God who possess the power of God, what things God wants to accomplish in and through us, that we, we do not work in the flesh and try and do any of these things in the flesh, but how the Spirit of God wants to use us in our weakness and show his strength. Don't quit. Don't give up. What might seem like a failure right now, God is preparing you for. Think of David. Remember how he'd been uh, anointed king by Samuel. But he had to wait because now he's got this character Saul who's after him and after him and after him to want to kill him. And David, we can take it this way, that God knew in his wisdom that David wasn't ready just then to become king. But he had to go through some other lessons in life and experiences before it was going to be the right time. We need to remember that. Someone has said, don't give up and don't give in. Think about Saul of Tarsus before he became the great apostle Paul. In his early years, he had come to believe that Christians were enemies of God. And he was sincere in that. He thought he was doing the right thing to be persecuting Christians. And that's why he gladly persecuted them to the point of death. No apologies at that point in his life. But just put yourself in Saul's shoes for a second. How do you think he felt when he did have that experience on the road to Damascus and he realized he'd been wrong? And all of the lives directly who'd been persecuted and killed and martyred, not to mention the untold grief of family members who had lost loved ones because of his doing. How do you think he felt? After making one mistake, he was very determined that he wouldn't make another. Philippians 3, he says these wonderful words, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, and I wonder if this had to be in his mind when he said it, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've made mistakes in our lives. We've done things that if we could take it back, we wish we could. But we take that principle of what Paul said, and in one sense, we have to leave it at the cross where God gives forgiveness. It's behind us, and now we press on. We look forward. We keep our eyes focused on Jesus. 
We don't remember, we don't want to keep going backwards to what happened and leading ourselves up into discouragement. And lastly, we can be discouraged, maybe discouraged by now after these three points, but we can be discouraged when we're alone, can't we? And yet we have these wonderful verses of Scripture where Jesus promises uh, to be with us. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. And so in our loneliness, and whether that's when you're with a crowd of people and you feel lonely, or you actually are physically lonely and alone, there's this, the verse of Scripture talks about there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother in Ecclesiastes, and he's there for us. The enemy of God may want us to think that we're alone, but we're not. Scripture tells us we're not. So in conclusion, really, when you think about it, how do we handle, how do we deal with feelings of disappointment and discouragement? And I would just suggest three remembers. Remember that God is aware of your circumstances. Nothing, and I've said this so many times before, and I tell myself this, but nothing catches our God by surprise. Nothing happens that he said, oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, like Elijah didn't see what was going to happen. He, didn't, he couldn't have predicted Eli- uh, 1 Kings 19 in light of what had happened in 17 and 18. But it doesn't catch God by surprise. We might be completely stunned, but he isn't. And we've got to just remember to ask God to help us to trust him, to go to God in those times when that occurs. And also, secondly, just we need to remember that disappointment is part of life on earth. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. There's a travel agency that has a sign on the window that says, please go away soon. And we would like, if you like, everything to go away soon. All those disappointments, all those things, all those heartaches. But we can't isolate ourselves from pain. We can't. And the question is, is in the pain, will we become angry and discouraged or allow God to work out his purposes in our life? A couple weeks ago, I was in the mountains in Tahoe, and uh, we were having a wonderful time uh, camping, and I was on a bicycle with my wife, Cindy, and we were, everything was wonderful. We'd gone for a nice lunch, and then the phone rings. And I pick it up, and it's one of my daughters, and she said, can I talk to you for a second, uh, privately? Are you? And I think, oh, this isn't good. So I get up from lunch and go into an outside the lodge where we were. And she tells me some news about one of my other kids. That was really, frankly, pretty discouraging. And um, I didn't get indigestion, but it was pretty much at that point, came back and visited with some other people that we'd gotten to know next to us just visiting. And um, went back on the bike ride back to our campsite. And just rather than taking it to God in prayer, I just reacted in the flesh, and I got on the phone, and I called this suspect, my, one of my daughters. And you know what? Uh, I am not at all pleased and proud of how I responded on the phone to her. And it was harsh, and it was immature and childish, and there were some words I wish I didn't say, and I was on the phone back and forth with her for about an hour and a half. I haven't seen the phone bill yet, you know, on that one. Got back home and took a couple of days to kind of sort this out and then realized, you know, among other things, that God in all of this is wanting to teach me something too. 
Uh, yes, there's things she definitely got to learn, but there's things I got to learn. I got to learn how to love unconditionally. It's easy to love one another. It's easy to love our spouses, our family, our friends, our kids when they're doing what we want them to do. But how do we respond when they're doing something we don't and we're concerned for them? And I had to say some apologies to her. And frankly, God turned that situation that looked so bleak, so gloomy a couple of weeks ago into something that's turning out good for his purposes. And I have, I've got to understand, and I think we all do, that disappointment is part of life on earth. Stuff's going to happen. And we, we, need to be, we need to be ready, and we need to have the anchor firmly placed where we understand that it's God who's going to get us through, and we're going to go to him first and foremost before we do anything else. Stories told of two little teardrops, and they were floating down the river of life. And one said to the other, who are you? And said to the other, I'm a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. And that other teardrop said, who are you? And she said, well, I'm a teardrop of the girl who got him. We have to remember that sometimes what seems to be such a bad thing at the present time, or a good thing for that matter, may not be. God is working out his purposes, and we can't just have a, a mindset of a clock that just only sees about five minutes ahead, you know, or 24 hours ahead. But we have to see what is God's long-term picture here that he's wanting to do, and to trust him with that. And lastly, remember that disappointment can be defeated. We don't have to give into this. We don't have to cave into this. Disappointment isn't, how disappointment comes into our life, if you like, isn't the issue. Because there's a variety of reasons, as I've suggested, and then some. But how we're going to respond to it is key. In closing, there was a story told of some members of a church who were like here when I, before 1130 when you're going over memory verses that Ron leads and so forth. And you have these wonderful verses of scripture. And there was this time where this, in this church gathering, they were sharing their favorite verses Lots of folks shared verses, of course, on salvation and the wonderful assurance and God's promises. And there was this one elderly man that stood up and said that his favorite verse was in one of the Gospels, and it's a phrase that says, and it came to pass. It's in one of the Gospels, and it's actually not in the context of how he said it, but he was saying it in this sense, and he went on to say, you know, when sickness strikes, it encourages me to know that it will pass. When I'm in trouble... I know it won't last forever, but I'll soon be able to say it came to pass. And that's an important truth for us just to remember, isn't it? That whatever we're going through, and I know from talking to some of you here over the last few months, you're going through a lot. A day will come when it's no longer going to be a burden or a source of discouragement. But amazingly, isn't it, that in light of eternity, it will be that momentary affliction. And we will, I trust, myself included, learn from the disappointments that happen in our lives. And we'll take it and it'll be used for good in building us up to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as well as that, to be an encouragement to each other as we go through the storms that are in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Again, Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for the wonderful verse that you Tell us to come to you.
all who are weary and heavy laden. And you promise to give rest and nourishment and care for us like none other. We thank you for the way that you tenderly dealt with Elijah, that you fed him. You told him to get rest. And then you just tenderly ministered to him and communicated with him and spoke to him and let him know about uh, your presence and uh, having that wonderful, powerful relationship with you. And I just pray for all of us here that we'll be those who will just turn to you, that we will, in fact, take up the invitation that you so wonderfully give us. And that, Lord, in fact, you will give us rest. We pray that you'll help our our very weak and sensitive and sometimes tiring hearts just to trust you more each coming day um, as we continue just to prod on in life. We thank you for your presence here again with us this morning. We pray you bless us for the rest of the day, God, and that, again, you just make yourself known to us in a very special way this coming week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.